Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. And now, we have Joshua Wheeler and Brian Phillips. Joshua is from Alamogordo. Alamogordo. Alamogordo, New Mexico. His essays have appeared in many literary journals, including the Iowa Review, Sonora Review, Pink, and the Missouri Review. He's written feature stories for BuzzFeed and Harper's Magazine, and is a co-editor of the anthology We Might As Well Call It the Lyric Essay. He is a graduate of USC and New Mexico State University, and has an MFA in nonfiction writing from the University of Iowa. And he teaches creative writing at Louisiana State University. And joining him is Brian Phillips, former staff writer for Grandland and a former senior writer for MTV News. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the New Republic, Sleep, and Poetry, among other publications, as well as in Best American Sports Writing and Best American Magazine Writing. He lives here in LA. And they're here to talk about Acid West. Uh, here it is in all of its glory. Uh, with a beautiful cover, and uh, which our very own dear Jeff Dyer says, it's been a long wait for Joshua Wheeler's first book, but it would have been worth the wait even if we'd had to wait twice as long. Full of fine lines mined by a still young writer, Acid West is worth its weight in gold. Here they are. Where is Jeff tonight? I don't know, where is he? Is Jeff a no-show? He actually hasn't been to cross town. Oh, okay. He thought it was more important to you know yeah, sell his book than my book. Kind of rude. I don't know. I'll, I guess I'll allow it. Um, so hey guys, thank you so much for for coming out on a beautiful spring evening in LA. Um, I am really excited to be here with um, with Josh. When I first heard about this book, I was uh, I was a little bit giddy because these these topics. Um, uh, you know, the, the UFO phenomenon and American conspiracies and just the general kind of warped weirdness of the Southwest are things I've been interested in for a really long time, but mainly as an outsider. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's hard to be more of an insider in this world than, than Josh, who grew up in Alamogordo. Alamogordo. Right? And, <laughs> and, uh, and is writing about all of this stuff um, uh, from, from a, a perspective of deep and intimate and sometimes uncomfortable knowledge. Uh, this is a book that includes um, spacemen falling out of weather balloons onto his family's ancestral ranch. That includes uh, the like a, a town with a literally haunted water supply. Um, Mark Twain's failed career as a board game designer. Um, if you haven't read it, there's the, that's barely scratching the surface. Um, all but of also his successful career as a as a scrapbook as a scrapbook maker. maker exactly which was yeah right it turns out that Mark Twain's biggest selling book was his scrapbook which was just a blank book with Mark Twain's name on it not a book of Mark Twain's scraps <laughs> but a blank book for other people for your their scraps, scraps in. yeah um, it was like an app almost like a nineteenth century yeah. app um, original Instagram. <laughs> So we thought that to start, uh, Josh would read a little bit uh, from the book. What did, what did we say you were going to do the UFO? Yeah, I'll just give you a little taste of one of the essays. Um, I'm not even going to read nearly the whole thing, but just maybe five minutes of it. Um, so because our job here is to make you buy the book, 
if you haven't already. So um, we'll give you a little taste of what's in it. This is at the UFO Festival in Roswell, which is something that I've been to many times. Um, I was just interested in it as a cultural phenomenon, um, but sort of gotten more interested in it um, when I went for the first time with my niece, who was very young at the time. And um, sort of looking at it through her eyes made me think about it a little bit differently. And so this is, um, we've been there for a couple of days, um, and we're at a lecture being given by Stanton Friedman. So I'll just read you this part. Stanton Friedman bills himself as the world's foremost ufologist, spelled UFOologist. Stan the man has the cadence of an evangelist with the nasal tone of an academic, though neither of those descriptions capture how his ears and eyebrows seem shot into his face at amazingly congruent and sharply elfish angles. His head is huge, which makes it all the more remarkable when his eyes get crazy excited and swallow all his other features. Before we learn anything about the evidence for the existence of UFOs, we learn about the government's UFO lies. Stan the Man puts the words government UFO lies up on the big screen and tickles them with his laser pointer for effect. It made me angry, he says, because I don't like being lied to. In this lecture and the next lecture and most all the lectures on UFOs, the talk will be only tangentially of the existence of extraterrestrial life and mostly all about the secrets our government keeps. Something crashed in the desert near Roswell in July 1947. The local paper put RAAF captures flying saucer on ranch in the headline about the crash, and locals talked about it for maybe a week. All manner of unbelievable military shit fell from the skies onto S&M ranches in those days, and most folks were just grateful when it wasn't an atomic bomb. So the crash was mostly forgotten until Stan the Man put himself on the case. Starred in the 1979 documentary, UFOs Are Real, exclamation mark, which claimed to blow the whistle about the cosmic Watergate. UFOs are real un uncovered government documents about more than 100 UFO sightings in S&M and put much emphasis on the 1947 crash in Roswell as the clearest evidence of extraterrestrial visitation. And so, in the 80s, as synthesized music took over the airwaves and Spielberg took over the big screens and personal computers invaded our homes, the Roswell incident became a worldwide obsession. Roswell officially incorporated the International UFO Museum in 1991 and had a million visitors in its first decade. Under duress in the mid-90s, our government actually admitted to a cover-up at Roswell, said they'd lied about the wreckage being weather balloons because really they were Project Mogul, a fleet of atomic bomb-detecting balloons they'd wanted to fly over the Soviet Union, but then they crashed in the desert near Roswell. For Stan the Man, the admission of a government cover-up was only an admission of the government's ability to carry out a cover-up. And so still there are the stories of metal wreckage with unearthly properties of memory and stories of alien bodies pulled from the wreckage and stories of doctors poking and prodding those bodies with different medical devices over the last 66 years. Maddie Bear, that's my niece, another important thing you should know, she had been to space camp earlier this year and had done an alien autopsy and inside they found Twizzlers. <laughs> Maddie Bear says, they're just full of candy. I tell her not to talk during the lecture because I'm on the brink of an epiphany. Patrianoia, a word I invent that combines patriotism and paranoia. Patrianoia runs rampant in SNM. All the ranchers and illegal immigrants and atomic bomb downwinders and veterans and ufologists, all people whose love for America is outstripped only by their distrust of its government. 
Out in the parking lot is a Chevy Silverado with stars and stripes truck nuts hanging from a bumper sticker, uh, bumper stickered bumper with the phrase, lies in the skies written in an airplane's chemtrails. These are otherwise reasonable people, many of them kin to me, who suffer an inability to reconcile the ideology of American exceptionalism they've internalized with the anxiety daily seeping up out of their pores. Now, I love these patrianoiacs, and I'm of their breed more than I'd like to admit, but I understand, I think, that it makes no sense. For instance, so much of the belief in the existence of UFOs and extraterrestrial life relies on the belief that we have a government capable of keeping secrets. Aurora Boris is the term for this kind of thing, a snake eating its tail. Doc Young quotes Voltaire, who quotes Pascal, who quotes Empodocles, who looked up at the sky one night and said, God is a circle whose center is everywhere and the circumference nowhere. I want to stand up and yell Snowden to remind all the patrianoiacs that our government is not as competent and covert as their fear suggests. Pop sits next to me. Uh, Pop sits to my left looking like a turtle slowly receding into his shell that is not a shell, but the bulge of his gut. He ain't interested enough to be skeptical. He's never owned truck nuts. <laughs> That's, you know, that's, that's one of the less gloomy parts of the book, so <laughs> it gets more depressing from there. So when I, when I first came to this essay, which is called So Let All the Martians Come Home to Roost, I think, Let All the Martians Come Home to Roost, um, you know, I've read essays about uh, UFO events in Roswell, I've written essays about UFO events in Roswell. You sort of feel when you come to an essay like that, you know a little bit what to expect. It's going to be, you know, snazzy. Um, first person new journalism with a lot of like quirky details. But you wrote this really beautiful kind of lyrical essay that doesn't really get weighed, weighed too far into the UFO question and turns on basically your running a 5K with the UFO, the UFO aficionados, right? Yeah, I mean, well, everybody was worried about aliens and the potential of alien invasion, and, and it was happening at the same time as one of the um, anniversaries of, of a civil war battle at Gettysburg and they were doing all the civil war reenactments on that side of the country and so I was like why aren't we doing some pre-enactments you know like if we're really worried about these aliens we should be doing something that helps us to get ready for them and the only thing that was anything like warfare was the the 5k and the 10k right <laughs> the alien chase where people dress up like aliens and run so wait I, did you do the 10k did I just undersell it I, t I did the 10K, but it was by accident. I signed up for the 5K, um, but I did the 10K, and I got second place in my age group, I have, you know. Wow. There so, was only two of us in that age group. So when the aliens come, you're either going to be the first one there or the last one to catch. Right. Basically. Um, I'd be happy to be both of those. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. I wasn't very interested in trying to figure out if these conspiracies had any sort of factual basis. Mm. Um, and for me, it was really just seeing the way that my niece was responding to it. She was at a time in her life where she was maybe eight or nine, mm -hmm. and she was encountering these ideas for the first time. And I just, you know, like a scientist, like poking and prodding her, <laughs> like, I wanted to see. She's somebody who, like me, was raised in the church. And so I wanted to see how, when exposed to these other ideas about sort of heavenly beings, she would react. Um, and she mostly just thought that she had a weird uncle. Right, you know? right. But for me, it was fun. 
So I wanted to pick up the idea of uh, patrimonia, which you, you just discussed or just read about. Um, when I first finished your book, I was trying to make a list of uh, basically the, like, the characteristics of the Southwest and of New Mexico and your region of New Mexico, SNM, that you're talking about. So I wrote down, um, some of these are direct quotes from the book. Um, the difficulty of processing reality when it is composed of the unreal, creative paranoia, uh, surreal moral landscape, uh, thin membrane between the absurd and the tragic, a few things like that. And then as I was making this list, I was like, this is not the Southwest, this is like life in 2018 <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> Do you feel like um, like America is catching up? <laughs> like is the Yeah, I, I mean, so, so the weird thing about the desert in southern New Mexico is that it's always sort of been on the on the forefront of the weird stuff that's mm -hmm. going on right. um, in the country. And that's because it's been taken over by the military-industrial complex so much. That's because there's lots of wide open spaces for people with crazy ideas about, you know, commercial space flights to, to go and do stuff like that. Um, basically, anytime you have an open space where you're not going to have a lot of neighbors, you attract lots of people who want to do things that they don't want their neighbors seeing. Right? Um, and so there, there's been this weirdness that pervades southern New Mexico for a long time. Um, and I think it's just a regular American weirdness, but it's, it's highlighted there in a way because there's not a lot else going on. Right. You know, New Mexico has one of the lowest sort of um, people per square mile populations of any state in the country. Um, and one of the highest weirdness per capita rates mm -hmm. of, <laughs> of any place in the country. So it just, I, I think that it is... I tell people all the time, you know, especially when I was trying to get someone to buy the book, um, it's not a book about New Mexico, you know? It is, but it's not. It's about a lot of other stuff that's relevant to, you know, America and the world. So, I think that you're right, but it's just absurdly highlighted in, in New Mexico because so little else is going on there. Right. And it does seem like the, like the, like the force of weirdness kind of underlying a bunch of these essays is like the locate like the the presence of military testing right like there's and i was thinking about that and thinking of basically everywhere across the west where there's a big like military testing base we have this kind of like psychogeography full of like crazy like new myths like area 51 in nevada like what is it what is it do you think about the presence of of i mean i guess the military doing secret yeah. things like of course we're going to fill in the blanks but like why do we why do we go in the direction that we go with it um, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so for me, those weren't weren't strange things when I was growing up. Right. I grew up with stories of, of the cattle on my great grandfather's ranch being bleached white after the atomic bomb test, and this was a story that was common in southern New Mexico. This happened to the cattle, and I never really looked into it. And then when I started looking into it, I was like, wow, this is actually much crazier than I ever thought. Mm -hmm. It was way more cattle. The cattle were turned into a sideshow that were sort of taken around the Southwest. Um, Paramount Pictures came and did a film about them. You know, it was this oddity. Newspapers were like checking in with the cattle right. years later, right? Yeah. Like what happened to the cattle? The government finally got hit to it and they rounded them all up and took them to Tennessee. Mm. And every couple of years there would be a story about the irradiated cattle. Um, <laughs> but they got a very small number of them, right? I mean, it's funny, but the majority of those cattle that were irradiated went right into the food supply, right? right I mean, right. nobody nobody did anything about it because the government was telling them it's not, not too wild, you know, like, don't worry about it, um, you're not in any danger. Um, so, so, for me, I think it was coming back and realizing that those stories were indeed strange mm -hmm. um, that allowed me to sort of start researching them as part of this epidemic of 
of American culture. But we also do this weird thing, right, where when this kind of stuff happens, right, like when a cow gets irradiated, um, it's this oddity, but then it does move into the realm of myth. Right. And like very quickly after the, the atomic test in New Mexico, we had, um, what was the movie called? Um, thing? Oh, the, yeah, The Thing. The right? Thing. Or, no, not The Thing. The, um, yeah. yeah, I know what you're talking about. But it's basically giant spiders, right, that yeah. were mutated by the bomb. And, and all of our superheroes, right, come right. from this irradiation right, from right, the right. bomb. And so we have this ability as Americans to take these terrible things and subsume them into myth. Mm -hmm. And then somehow we are less scared of them. And I was very interested by that. And a lot of the essays sort of try and understand why that is and how that happens and whether or not those myths really make us less scared. So just to sort of set the scene for how, how close you were to the, um, the origin point for all of that, like your family's ranch was was like in kind of part of the White Sands missile range, which is where the, the Trinity site is, where the first atomic bomb was exploded, right? Sort of. Okay, so, yeah, so tell the story of the ranch, because I wanted to know more about it anyway. So my family's ranch was the White Sands Ranch. If you've been to southern New Mexico, you've probably been to the White Sands National Monument. The ranch was right across the highway from there. Um, it was one of the homesteaded beginning, you know, in the, in the early 1900s and had for a very long time. But during World War II, the government came in and said, we'd like to lease your land for a couple of years to, you know, do some tests. And all of the ranchers said, great, but, you know, the war was on. We're happy to help. Um, and they created at the time, it was called the Alamogordo Bombing and Gunnery Range. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where they eventually tested the bomb. Um, and then, after the lease expired, the government came back and said, you know, we actually can't give this land back to you because we did some weird shit up there. <laughs> it's no longer viable for agriculture. And basically declared eminent domain on a lot of, the, the, a lot of the, the, the land parcels that were part of these ranches and basically destroyed those people's livelihoods. Mm -hmm. um, my family clung on until the mid-late 90s, but many other families gave up in the 50s and 60s and, and left and went into other... Um, either to other ranches or moved on to other things. But Alamogordo and, and the ranch um, that my family had was about 60 miles south of the atomic bomb. Oh, okay. Um, but, but like within the context of the missile range, that's actually not that far, right? Like true. The range is so huge. It's, it's the largest military installation in the contiguous United States. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I, went, I visited the Trinity site like three years ago, I guess, and like I had to meet a military liaison at the gate of the of the base, and then we drove for three hours and got to the Trinity site. Basically, like it's just enormous. Brian's collection, Impossible Owls, which you should pre-order now, <laughs> is coming out in October. Yeah, yeah. He has a great essay which puts the Trinity site sort of in the context of this larger um, American um, attempt to understand the, the the strangeness. It's all on Route 66. Right? Yeah, yeah. I drove down Route 60. Drove yeah. from the, I drove from Roswell to Area 51 on Route 66, basically. So, but that's interesting too because that project is really similar to my project mm -hmm. in which in order to understand some of this vast, abstract, complicated stuff, we said, all right, here's specific geography. Right. And let's tap into this. Right, right, What's right. What's that about? Yeah, I don't know. That's, <laughs> like, that, that's the thing. For me, I was just lazy. I was like, <laughs> I want to write a book about everything, but I don't want to leave home. <laughs> right. So I'll just write it all about home. But one of the, like, that's a, that's a sneaky answer because you did a ton of research for this book. Like, it, you, you wear it lightly on the page, but it's clear that, like, you've got, there's so many amazing moments in this book where he's, you write about, like, the, the first appearance of the atom bomb test in the local newspaper. 
and like what else was in the paper that day and it turns out that the atom bomb test got like one small paragraph and like the circus that was coming to town got <laughs> two and a half pages or whatever that, yeah, that was one of those weird moments where when I started writing this book about southern New Mexico, everybody was like, of course you're going to write about the atomic bomb. Right. I was like, no, I'm not. Everybody's written about that, you know? Like, there's nothing new that you can say about it. But I was at this memorial service for people who had died of cancer, they said, from, um, you know, the atomic blast and mutations that have been passed down through generations. And I was sitting with one of the last living people of the Tularosa Basin who had actually witnessed the blast, this guy, Henry Herrera. And as we were talking, I was sort of thinking about things I had read about the bomb, and, and I looked up the local paper, and I remembered the circus, and I was sort of obsessed with this idea that there had been a circus the week after the test, you know? Um, and I was just sort of talking to him, and in our conversation, it came out that where we were sitting right there having that memorial was where the circus had set up, which was just about 20 miles, 20, 25 miles from where the Trinity site was, and directly in the line of sort of um, fallout that the government has always denied existed, even though their own documents show that, that, that the fallout went to those places. And so I was like, well, that's, now I think there's something here. I don't understand it. How could there be a circus in the fallout? How could there be these guys literally going around with canister vacuum cleaners, vacuuming up fallout, right? This is what they were doing in the days after Trinity, but using pieces of bread to breathe through because they were told that it was, and so in my mind, I just started building up this story that was 10 times stranger than I had ever heard it. And I didn't understand it, and um, that was when I decided that I should write about it. Yeah. I think that happens with essays, right? Mm -hmm. You think you know a story, and you only become interested in it when you, when you sort of hit a roadblock, and you say, I don't get this, I don't understand it, and now I'm going to dive deep and see what I can do with right. it. Right, everyone has that online experience where you look one thing up, and then that leads to a link that's a little stranger, and that leads to a link that's a little stranger, and before you know it, you're watching, like, parakeet fighting videos from <laughs> wherever. Um, yeah, and your, your process of research seems to, like, embody that in, the, <laughs> in real life. Like, but yeah. that's actually the condition of reality. So we, we talk about the essay as being, uh, when I teach the essay, I'm a teacher, I won't get too teachy on you here, but we talk about it being a loose sally of the mind, mm -hmm. which is a definition that Samuel Johnson gave it back when he was writing his big fat dictionary, but I just love that idea, a loose sally of the mind. Mm -hmm. And so when I write, I say, here's something I don't understand. I don't understand how this bomb and all of this fallout could have been so known that there were people with vacuum cleaners going around and cleaning it up, and yet there was nothing done for the people who lived there in terms of um, warnings, in terms of health, you know, healthcare after the fact, um, or, or you know, the story about um, the Red Bull Stratos, where a guy's gonna jump, you know, <laughs> from a capsule tethered to a balloon. What's that about, right? Like, right. why the hell are we doing that? You guys remember when the, the guy did this, right? He like rode a balloon up into the stratosphere and jumped out with a GoPro strapped to his helmet for Red Bull. And it had been, it had, the, and then I, when I found out that they had done this in the 60s already, mm -hmm. and that the original guy who had done it in the 60s as part of a military test had landed on my family's ranch, um, I was like, wow, you know, this is... Well, yeah. A lot of stuff lands on his family's ranch. <laughs> and, and it's, it's it's true. Cool. Yeah. My, 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 my mom and my uncles tell stories about finding unexploded munitions out on the ranch, and um, they would play for a few, you know, play with it for a few days until their folks found out about it and they'd call up the military and say, we got one of yours, have you seen any of ours? And then there'd be a trade, you know, like missile for a cow. <laughs> White cow? Yeah, right, right. Okay. one of these bad boys. 
Yeah, there's a there's a moment when the the spaceman from the weather balloon um, on after the fall and after the fall like lands on the ranch, I think it is, and uh, your your grandfather or great grandfather is like, you can have him back when you fix my fences. Right. <laughs> like the military like swarms in and like crushes all the fences on their way to like get their guy. It's I mean it's a strange relationship between the folks who are still ranchers down there in the military mm. because like my family was one of many families who transitioned into being civilian contractors right for the military um, so like I have an uncle for instance who um, leads oryx hunts back in the 70s they imported a bunch of African oryx to the White Sands Missile Range because they wanted to raise revenue by having exotic hunts and they sort of I've, go, I've seen them and it's as weird yeah, as it sounds you, like, yeah you write amazing. You, yeah. you write about them in that Route uh, 66 essay beautifully. Yeah. And, um, but just the fact that my family ended up having to make a living by working for the military, mm. um, and that that happened to a lot of other families too, there's this strange relationship. We hate the government, right? They've poisoned us, they've like done all these things, but they're signing our checks, right? So we can't push them out. Um, so this, this kind of love-hate relationship about the military-industrial complex extends to a lot of other things in southern New Mexico too. And there's this quality where like, patriotism like flips into contempt and absurdity flips into sometimes really painful tragedy really quickly like i'm thinking of the place where you wrote about um the question of whether the uh whether atomic bomb testing killed john wayne which is a kind of old american conspiracy theory he was filming his the really ridiculous genghis khan biopic where john wayne is playing genghis khan downwind of a bunch of nuclear testing right yeah, they were in, they were near Snow Canyon, Utah, where yeah. a lot of tests has happened, and it was an absurd project to begin with. John Wayne is Genghis Khan. It's like the least American sort of film that John Wayne could have done, um, but it had, you know it had all these resonances because it was you know a Howard Hughes film, mm -hmm. and Howard Hughes became this sort of um, insane individual who weirdly was very much against atomic testing, but mostly just because it was shaking his penthouse in Las Vegas. Convenient, yeah. There's, the, I mean, the great thing about writing essays, and especially in, a, in about a place that has played such a pivotal role in a lot of American history, is you can follow the connections to almost anywhere. Mm. Um, and that's maybe one of the things that, uh, that I loved about doing it so much, even though I tended to be uncovering pretty grim shit. I yeah, I was I was really moved by how quickly an anecdote like the, the John Wayne thing would would flip into a, a really kind of horrifying story about what had happened to the the original downwinders, who were the people who were living near the Trinity site and um, often right. suffered terrible illnesses with no help because the government wanted to deny. There's and so that's similar. This absurdity flipping into sincerity happens there, but it also happens in maybe some less grim essays, mm -hmm. like like the Atari dig. Yeah, right, right. Because I don't want these folks here to think that the whole book is totally depressing. No, it's it's not totally depressing. There's some funny stuff. The Atari dig actually included uh, one of the moments that I thought was most uh, most resonant, which is at the beginning of the essay. You are, and this happens a lot in this book. This sort of thing. You are in a landfill um, trying to take a selfie with a giant stuffed E.T. doll which is buckled into a DeLorean which is owned by Ernest Klein, the author of Ready Player One. Right. Right? Like, and he and he had just gotten the DeLorean back from loaning it to George R.R. R. Martin for several okay. years. So, and, then, and I talk about in that, in that essay that Alamogordo where this happens, where the Atari company buried tens of thousands of um, uh, video games that they wanted to get rid of 
back in the 80s. Alamogordo is this weird cultural node, you know, and nobody thinks of it as being that, right? You don't go there and say, oh, I'm going to catch a great opera in Alamogordo tonight. Right? <laughs> Not going to happen. And yet, it ends up playing a big role in a lot of these sort of weird pop cultural things. Um, I think I talk about it being like a like a devil's triangle, you know, between Roswell, the Trinity site, and um, um, I forget what the other point of the triangle Space is. Spaceport, Spaceport America. Maybe. Yeah, maybe Spaceport. Yeah. But it's, it's just, you know, absurd, right? Yeah. That they would come and, and they would do this. And then you start looking into that story about the town landfill and you find that there's uh, methyl mercury poisoned pigs from the 70s that were like a huge part of getting that out of that kind of uh, mercury out of fertilizer. and um, Yeah. I wanted to write a book about my home because I wanted people to know it was important. Right. But I've also sort of let people know that it's absurd and, and weird. Well, that moment in your essay, I think, is where you said, you wrote something like, it is impossible to satisfyingly describe reality when it is composed of the unreal, which I just felt like that's like the epigraph to like life now. Um, I mean, that's what like all writers are, are trying to deal with, I think. So, that's true. But like, so in, a, in a way, we're all in that landfill. <laughs> we are all tra tramp tramping around, traipsing around, yeah. and my town's trash. Yep. Exactly. Um, yeah, but the strange thing is, so most of these essays were written in my 20s, and for most of the time, we were in an Obama presidency. Mm. And so it felt, it felt okay for me to sort of be contrarian and grim about a lot of this stuff. Oh, right, say, right. Here's this absurd video game, um, archaeological dig that they're doing in my town's landfill, and let me see how I can show how this is just one more example of how fucked up we are as a nation, right? Um, and it felt okay to do that at that time. But now that I'm promoting the book in a Trump presidency, I feel sort of bad about it. I feel like now's the time we need to be optimistic right. and hopeful because right. we have to we have to push past the terrible situation, the unreal situation in which we found ourselves, and it's no longer enough to just say this is unreal. Right, so I, I'm, I'm in a weird place where I am not exactly excited about promoting the book because it came from sort of a different era. I, I, I can see that, and I, I think that the, the essay in your book that kind of most tackles the question of civic optimism is maybe truth or consequences on the gateway to space. Yeah, the one about the, the Spaceport America that Richard Branson built. Basically, Virgin and Richard Branson came in and built a gigantic um, airport for space flights in the New Mexico desert near this tiny town called Truth or Consequences, which is not the sort of, I've, I've been through it, it's not the sort of town you think of when you picture like the frontier of science fiction. Right. It's like... Well, kind of is. You write greatly about small towns and science fiction. Yeah, I guess like you can see people in Truth or Consequences being really into science fiction, but, <laughs> but like seeing this like gleaming, you know, like... But it's not, it's not the kind of town that, um, you know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie want to come to when they're having their first um, trip to space. When they're, which they paid $200,000 for or whatever. Yeah, plus. Yeah, right. $250,000 now at least. Right. That, I mean, so that whole situation has been going on for a long time, and people in New Mexico have known about it for a long time. The spaceport's been sort of built for 10 years. Beautiful building, almost impossible to get to, um, and very little has been happening out there. Right. But every year they've been promising, it's going to be a huge tourist boom. It's going to change this town. It's going to bring so much money. And they had this tax, which they put on everyone in southern New Mexico to, to raise the money, a quarter of a billion dollars to build it. 
And for years, Virgin Galactic wasn't even paying any sort of money as rent, you know? Um, and it's strange because I'm like many people there, I want it to work out, right? Like we want to be the place where people are going to space for fun. But at the same time, it's like we're getting screwed over every right. day that nothing is happening here. And our tax dollars are still going to maintain this and run it and pay for the AC bill out there, which is absurd, right? Um, and this and is a little, a little town that could use maybe use some help. Like, yeah. like if you just put that money into renovating uh, Truth or Consequences. Right, which is a beautiful town. Maybe we should talk about why it's called Truth or Consequences. <laughs> strange story. It used to be called Hot Springs because they have lots of wonderful hot springs there. And in fact, Too obvious. <laughs> if, if, if you're in the market for a house and you like Hot Springs, I would recommend you go to Truth or Consequences because almost every house is above a hot spring and you can dig your own in your backyard. And you know, you get a decent house there for $20,000. You just have to live in truth or consequences. <laughs> but it was called Hot Springs. People, it was a big tourist destination because the Hot Springs had supposedly medicinal properties. Right. Um, but then there was uh, a radio show called Truth or Consequences in the 50s that had, uh, they did a publicity stunt where they said they would come and do the show in any town that would change its name. Uh -huh. And so this town was like, we'll do it. <laughs> was it like a game show or what? Do you know what sort of show? Yeah, it was. It was a game show, basically yeah. like a truth or dare kind of right. kind of thing. Um, and truth or consequences. Actually, it, it caused a big rift in the community. People, people were against people, it. Oh yeah, people. Yeah. People left. They were like, I'm not living in a town called Truth or Consequences. Um, but yeah, it's a cool place. And I love it. The weird place I'm in with this book is that I have to always say, you know, like. Even though I'm telling these um, grim stories about the state and like exposing the underbelly or whatever, like, mm. it's a place I love more than anywhere else. No, I think that comes across. I mean, the book the book made me want to spend much more time in southern New Mexico, not less. Like I I, I have been spent half an hour in Truth or Consequences. Like I had I think I had lunch there one day on yeah. the way through, and I really want to go back and uh, try out the hot springs. You gotta soak in those hot springs. Yeah. Change your life. Experience the, the come for the truth, stay for the consequences. <laughs> <laughs> I think you come because of consequences elsewhere. Oh right, right. And you find truth right. there. Hopefully you, you escape the truth. That you, you soak know. in the hot springs. <laughs> you watch Brad Pitt fly into space, and you find this is it. This is my truth. This right. Is what I was meant to do. <laughs> so I wanted to ask briefly about the title of the book, yeah. um, which I think is great. Um, it's a it's a it's a movie term. It's a, yeah, so there's a genre of films in late 1960s, 1970s called Acid Westerns. Mm. Um, a film by Monty Hellman called The Shooting, which was um, starring Jack Nicholson, was sort of considered one of the first. Um, but there's others like El Topo um, by Alejandro Jodorowsky, Greaser's Palace, which was directed by Robert Downey Sr. It was Robert Downey Jr.'s first role as a five-year-old in this movie, Greaser's Palace. Um, all of these acid westerns sort of wanted to flip the traditional western mythology on its head. They had lots of wild psychedelic scenes. Um, there was uh, lots of sort of um, upending of religious ideas. Um, the whole aesthetic of it really appealed to me because it seemed to capture the absurdity of southern New Mexico more than any sort of straightforward John Wayne film. Mm. and. Um, I tried to write about those films for a long time, and um, then I just was like, why don't I just write about the acid west, which is where I grew up. And um, a lot of those acid westerns were actually filmed in New Mexico. Greaser's Palace 
features a scene of uh, a zoot-suited Jesus falling from the sky onto the gleaming white gypsum sand. Onto your family's the ranch. <laughs> <laughs> well, pretty, pretty damn close. Right, right, right. right. Um, so I just love that idea of, of the Acid West. And the editors were sort of, they didn't necessarily want to call the book SNM, which was the other. Mm. I can so, see how that might be. So Southern New Mexico is where I'm from, and a lot of places in Southern New Mexico, it's like the S&M Power Company or the S&M Surgical Associates, and I talk about how, ha it's funny, it sounds like S&M, but in fact, it's great because we all, we all feel sadomasochistically about where we're from, you know? And so S&M, I thought it was fantastic, but yeah. they said nobody's gonna get it. So. But you guys got it. But Skylight has, you know, the most intelligent crowd of any bookstore in the country, so... That's right. Yes, uh, you're right. Sorry, I was thinking about other bookstores. Um, <laughs> all the other bookstores are good, too, which we no, have to say not because that good, this, is, this is being recorded, though, and, and, and will be um, published on the internet, so... Yeah, at other bookstores? Uh, I'm still a um, I love all bookstores equally. Before we ask for audience questions, I wanted to ask you uh, one quick question about... Um, Drones, because you have some really interesting stuff in the book about um, drone warfare and the ethics of drone warfare. And there's an amazing moment at the beginning of the book where you're at a baseball game with your dad, and you are talking about the drones that are probably flying overhead because now S and M is this like hotbed of drone pilot training. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about this Air Force report um, about drone pilot training in which the Air Force says that the, uh, the key to reducing civilian casualties caused by drones is basically to teach the drone pilots how to inhabit a, quote, surreal moral universe. Just like, what? that's what we're doing now on, on purpose. So it was, um, I mean, it was, it was two things. One, they were like, we gotta keep these guys from getting bored. Right. Because a drone pilot mostly just watches a screen of a desert for 10, 12, 15 hours at a time. And they get bored, and when they get bored, they get itchy joystick trigger fingers, mm -hmm. right? And then that's when um, problems can occur. But then also just the ability to live in a surreal moral universe, which is a great description of Grand Theft Auto, right? Mm -hmm. Or Halo, or any other video game. Those are surreal moral universes in which the laws by which we try to live our lives and our civilization don't apply. And so they have to teach these guys to almost have a different kind of morality. Um, in order to do guys and, and, and women, to, uh, in order to do these jobs. Um, but then also, like for me, just the main thing was like, they were bored. They were like, how do we fix this? And they invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into making chairs that were going to make these guys like pay attention more. Right, the key was less comfortable chairs. Right. Like, that was the what... drone pilots were too comfortable in their chairs, so they were getting sloppy and like killing Right, like killing children, like it. And so I, you know, I'm thinking about this while I'm watching this baseball game, and and you can literally see in southern New Mexico the Predator and the Reaper drones. They they follow cars to train on how to like, you know, follow targets. They're there in the sky. You see them. And I was sitting there on a very uncomfortable bleacher, being a spectator, and I was like, this is this is what they are. Like, let's just give them bleachers and say you're here to be a spectator at this war that you're fighting and you don't even know who, you know, who it is that you're um, attacking. And yeah, so it, it, a lot of the book I think is me taking something that seems mundane and boring and trying to use it to understand something that is much more consequential. Mm -hmm. And that essay was one of the earlier essays that I wrote um, and it sort of set the mark for it. But 
I also have an essay coming out in Gulf Coast Magazine this month, which didn't make it in the book, but my grandfather was, you know, worked with some of the very first drone developers out at the White Sands Missile. Oh, as a, so. as, a, as, a, as a contractor? As a contractor, yeah. yeah. He wow. and my uncles were in charge of flying some of the earliest military drones called Firebees. And, um, so that's just another one of those weird coincidences. Mm -hmm. Marilyn Monroe, by the way, was discovered uh, putting together a drone. She had a picture taken by the military for a, a military magazine. She was working on, a, on, a, on an early drone. Like as a, as a hobbyist? Or no, that was her job. She was, yeah. oh, oh, like a young Marilyn Monroe. A young Marilyn Monroe. Oh, okay, okay. I was and picturing her in like a white dress. <laughs> <laughs> well, she might as well have been. The, right. the essay is about how they would, in the 50s, they would take models and pose them next to these drones in order to try and sell them to um, generals, you know? Oh, I didn't realize they went back that far. Oh, yeah. Drones. Like, I, I had no idea. The first autonomous vehicles were being flown by the government in the late 1930s. Wow. And they used drones fairly extensively in the Vietnam War. Mm. Um, yeah. But not with much accuracy. Right. So. Right. Well, uh, everyone please uh, buy Joshua Wheeler's Laugh a Minute. Um, <laughs> it's a long it's a long book, so you get a laugh maybe every twenty pages. It's a, it's a lot it's a lot of laughs. Um, should we open the floor? Yeah, yeah, people have questions or comments or arguments. Have you met anybody that gave you pause in thinking there aren't aliens or there aren't cows that have their blood sucked out? Because I have, actually. You mean people who are credible? Yes. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I actually spend a lot more time at that UFO festival than just the year that I write about. Mm. Um, and there, so one of the guys that I write about in the book is uh, Travis Walton, who's the right. fire in the sky guy. Um, and. I what is your take on him? Do you believe him? I sort of have no reason to doubt him. His, his story hasn't changed that much over the years. He's been very consistent um, in all the sort of iterations in which it's come up. Um, he's sort of got this vacant look in his eyes, you know, um, which suggests that something has occurred. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that there are people that have stories that are not just the you know, uh, movie of the week sort of alien thing. Um, but also people in New Mexico, in southern New Mexico especially, are um, very eager to attribute this kind of oddity to other humans. Military testing, right? So, and Travis even talks about this at times, Travis Walton, he'll say, I don't know for sure there was aliens, you know? It's possible I could have been drugged and then a bunch of GIs could have took me into a warehouse and done some weird stuff to me. Um, and I think most people in southern New Mexico that are from there tend to have that sort of, it's the government rather than it's um, aliens. But I don't know. I've met lots of people in southern New Mexico who I couldn't be, I wouldn't be able to explain other than saying that they're from elsewhere. <laughs> oh, so you think they're, they're among us? Oh, yeah. Well, okay. I mean, if they exist, they're among us. Right, right. Right? Yeah. Where else would they go? We got the best TV shows. That's true. America. Other questions? Comments? Are you writing any pieces about the drones? Yes, there's one in the in this book that's about the drones, and then there's one that's coming out in Gulf Coast magazine that's about the early days of the drones, sort of. Anything more more 
reason, and the reason I'm asking this is um, I just recently learned that one of the first Americans killed by a drone was actually from Los Cruces, also in New Mexico. Yeah, uh, Anwar Al-Awlaki. Yeah, I write about it in the book. It's a, it's a weird thing. So his dad was on a Fulbright um, in Las Cruces learning how to um, bring our agricultural practices over to the Middle East, which um, is because we have very similar deserts. Um, and the sort of running joke in southern New Mexico is that um, it's New Mexistan. Anytime you need to shoot a film that takes place in Iraq or Afghanistan or Pakistan, you go to New Mexico, and you southern New Mexico, and you shoot Transformers there, and you shoot all of the, the men who stare goats were shot there, you know? And so it's sort of a joke, but then it's also true. Like there's literally the agricultural practices of southern New Mexico are being transplanted to the Middle East. and. And then, yeah, you know, the, the, the first sort of radical imam that was killed by a drone was raised in, in southern New Mexico. So it's another one of those weird sort of cultural note deals that comes out. The water is haunted. Okay, other questions? All right, well, I guess, uh, I guess we'll wrap up. Thank you guys, Thank so, you guys much so much for coming out. And let's uh, back to this one. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.